Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great, you'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Unhealthy Markets edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I don't know how unhealthy the markets are. I have been bombarded all week with headlines about the stock market hitting new all-time highs. Um, And the Fed funds interest rate, the the most important interest rate in the entire world, is back in the news this week. It moved. And it's not a common thing. It hasn't been a common thing in recent years for that thing to move. We are going to talk about the Fed and the Fed interest rates. We are going to talk about generic drug prices because those things have been going up like gangbusters, possibly, we now learn, due to illegal collusion. I, of course, am Felix Salmon of Fusion. My partners in slate money crime are the usual pair of reprobates. Kathy O'Neill, the <laughs> author of Weapons of Math Destruction. Hello, Felix, you're sounding so chipper this morning. Um, it's it's because I had beer last night, and so we can talk I. a little bit about that. Um, we also have Jordan Weissman. Always from, happy to be on air with you two unrepentant drunks. That's... Mon- money works. <laughs> we, Losers, I we're prefer. Feeling, we're feeling perky this morning on account of last night we recorded the Slate Money live show all about beer. Yeah. I wouldn't say perky. I was going to go with like satisfied or something. It went it, it went well, I think, and all of you wonderful Slate Money subscribers get to listen to it um, over the new year, I think is the time that we're going right. to drop that episode. So you have that to look forward to. If well, you listen subscribe. to it when you're hungover from your New Year's Eve party, I think. That's like, <laughs> yeah, that's the perfect mode right yeah, there. Yeah, I feel like if you really if you really want a jumping New Year's Eve party, <laughs> invite all your friends around and then just sit them down and say, listen to Slate Money. <laughs> That's 
It'll be fun. Um, but for the time being, we're going to talk about the news of this week. And Kathy, yeah. you found an article which scared you. It did. It did. I want to start out like pretending that this is good news. Can we do that? Yeah, I'm, 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 in a, I'm in the mood for good news. Someone will play. Give me some advocate. good news. Okay, we're Kathy. gonna we're gonna say, oh, we're gonna be we're gonna put on our happy faces. IBM, Pepsi, and Je- Johnson and Johnson are among those companies that are weighing the idea of reporting their the health of their workforce um, in their quarterly. Um, statements and, and such to the shareholders. The idea being, this is a one of the many markers of health of a company. Isn't this a great idea, guys? It, How- it's, it's, it's <laughs> like when, when you talk about a healthy company, like you, people normally think of that in terms of balance sheets and profit statements and stuff. But you can take that very literally, and you can say, "We are a really healthy company. Our workforce is super healthy. None of us ever get sick, and healthy bodies, healthy minds, and that makes us more productive. And no sick days, and so lower healthcare our, costs. Our shareholders yeah. and lower healthcare costs, and our shareholders are going to um, love us and probably bid up the share price just because they can see how healthy we are. And and lower healthcare costs and lower healthcare <laughs> yeah, costs. Yeah, lower healthcare costs. Lower Don't you mention. So so is that true that if you if you, if a company. Um, you know, let's say I'm IBM and I have tens of thousands of employees and I'm negotiating a healthcare deal with an insurer. Um, will that insurer look at how healthy my tens of thousands of employees are in aggregate and give me a lower price if they're healthy? I mean, they do look at your like history, how much you've. Like, I mean, like there was that famous incident with AOL essentially where one of their employees quote spent a lot on like a hard childbirth and that created problems as far as the company was concerned financially. Well no I that mean, that cost yeah. the company money but yeah. that didn't raise the insurance premiums that the company was charged by its insurers as far as I know. Well it might. I mean they renegotiate that. Yeah, they have um, to they have to go year after year. I think the answer is yes. No, I you see no, I'm I'm going to stick to this for a minute. I mean, I think the answer is yes, but I don't think the answer is yes in the case of AOL because um, that isn't like having one employee who has like you know an expensive baby is not predictive of having future employees who have expensive babies. The insurers aren't going to say you have an unhealthy workforce, therefore we're going to charge you more because your workers cost more to. Well, the the AOL healthy. example I probably shouldn't brought because that was such a just fucked up example, totally, and what it may have been like the company just kind of covering for itself, but. Yes, I mean, you having a having an expensive, hard to care for workforce is, should theoretically be raising your premiums as a company in the end. So w- this really ties into a growing market of what what is called wellness programs that yeah. employees start wellness programs. It turns out, as of last year, seventy percent of employee employers actually institute have instituted wellness programs, and wellness programs can be really great. And they can be really horrible. So we're about to switch into the slightly dystopian perspective. But basically, it comes down to whether there are carrots or sticks involved. And the idea is, if you want a healthy workforce, which is good for everybody, um, then you can give them all sorts of opportunities. Like Google gives people opportunities um, to and, be healthy. And, and, and like, literally, you can give them carrots. Like, <laughs> in, like if, if you go to, to the little corporate milling around area, which used to be called a water cooler and is now metastasized into this whole huge part of all trendy offices with a lot of soft furnishings and um, free-flowing coffee. You know, the question is, is it full of M&Ms or is it full of carrots? And do you have exercise balls in that area? Do you have free yoga classes or do you give discounts to, like, gyms? That that kind of thing could be good. could be good for people, right? 
And, yeah, so, and so that's but, the good. So, so so carrots are good. What what are the sticks? What are the, the bad? The sticks are really kind of alarming. And I um I researched this in, for my book as well, and I looked into it. The sticks are things like you know basically how fat are you? <laughs> how much do you smoke? Um, do you have chronic diseases? And are you c- controlling your chronic disease as well? And the and way the, and the company asks that re- requires the employees to hand over that information. Not only that information. Most wellness programs basically insist that you take, you get a, a doctor's, uh, you get a full physical every year and that the data is collected by the company. And by the way, it's not sufficient to sign a form saying, yes, I got a physical. It, it, somehow the, the wellness program insists that you give the data to because, them. Because if they don't receive the data, then they can't go and report it onto their shareholders. Yeah. Yes. So can, can we get into why like this is like getting really dystopian? Yeah, in my let's head. do it. So... The second companies start reporting a cost to their shareholders, that means there will be pressure to keep that cost down more and more over time as that gets, you know, just becomes a natural part of your okay, quarterly okay, so report. I feel like someone jumped forward a step here. Um, we, we, like, Kathy was talking about companies just reporting data on healthiness or whatever metrics you want to use for healthiness. And now, Jordan, you're saying they're reporting a cost. What's this cost they're reporting? Well, essentially, I mean, if you're reporting healthiness, the the... the I, to me, as far as I'm concerned, that that means there's going to be a obvious emphasis on how much you are spending on healthcare for your workforce. That is going to become a m- more and more pressing concern at, for for insurers. That that just seems obviously where that's going to be going. And well, as, okay, because again, just slow down because not, it might be obvious to you, and it's not obvious to me, and it's probably therefore not obvious to everyone listening to this. So let's say I have one of these wellness programs, and I am paying for. Um, you know, gym memberships and carrots and bouncy balls and yoga classes, um, and that's a cost. Um, which I say this is this is a really good investment because it's keeping my employees healthy and stopping them from going to the doctor and stopping them from having to take time off work and that kind of stuff. And you're saying that if I start reporting that cost, my shareholders are going to want that cost no, to go no, down. They're, they're Let going... me connect some dots before okay. you, before we get to the shareholders because yeah. I think. Um, the wellness programs themselves tout themselves as cost savings devices. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of controversy over exactly how that cost is actually being saved. Um, a RAND report in 2013 came out saying that in general, it doesn't necessarily, there's no there's no good ROI. There's no really good return on investment for these corporate wellness programs. Because as you mentioned, they do cost money. You have to get all these bouncy balls and you have to make all these systems put in place. The thing that that we I think we need to focus on because we're slate money, is that there's a question of whether it's saving the company money to institute this wellness program versus whether it's actually making the employees healthier. And I think there really is a distinction there. And the, the answer is essentially, there are certainly programs that save money, but the way they save money is by putting more onus on unhealthy people to pay for their insurance. So in other words, they're not making people healthier, but they are saving money. Yeah, so one of the things with these wellness programs is if you don't abide by them, if you don't follow, you know, the the 10 step plan they give you to deal with your smoking or whatever, sometimes you have to pay more money for your insurance. So you actually have to pay more money if you refuse to take the tests. Yeah. But in some cases when they have real sticks and Michelin Tire Company was one of the examples early on. If you don't improve your BMI or if you don't stop smoking, you actually have to pay even more extra money. Um, so there's really like basically they're saying people who are unhealthy have to pay more for their insurance. And if you think about it, of course, that saves money. Yeah, exactly. And so to me, uh, when you're talking about presenting this information to shareholders, yes. there's going to be the the obvious next step is to 
create more or present more and more data specifically about your healthcare insurance costs and how much money you are saving by forcing people to spend more. All of that is going to become more and more part of the calculation. And there will be more pressure to make your slightly unhealthy employees pay more for their insurance. Not only that, but the reason I I brought it up in my book is because one of the reasons I worry about it is not only are we going to have added pressure for companies to save even more money on healthcare, but we're going to have pressure on companies to never hire sick people in the first place. Exactly. And that is just a a, a shit show. If you think about what that means, it's like ageism, it's, you know, it's racism, like who's sick in this country? Who's unwell? Yes. Exactly the people that should be protected from this kind of hiring problem. Yeah, you know, you think about the protections we have for the quote sick in this country. They're mostly the ADA. It's it's the American with Disabilities Act. So if you have a real uh, dis- like like very distinct disability, you know, you're in a wheelchair or something, then you're protected. But if you're a smoker or you're overweight, no, you're not a protected class in this country. You can be discriminated against by an employer. And so that there is, you know, I don't think Americans have really thought about this before that, you know, a lot of people may actually be vulnerable to discrimination for things like this in the future. And it, that's starting to become a, a, I think, a distinct possibility. And the more important this kind of thing becomes to shareholders, the more the like the more danger. Pressure. Yeah, mm-hmm. the more danger there is about discrimination against the sick. So. It seems to me that what we're worried about here is these things which sound nice in theory, corporate wellness programs, healthy workforce, fewer people taking sick days, everyone being sort of in shape, well-rested, coming into work full of vim and figure, is a sort of thin veneer hiding a bunch of discrimination against the old and the sick and the infirm and the people who we really need to be worried about as a society. Absolutely. There's like one one statistic which I is completely out of context that was in the article on the Wall Street Journal that we found this in. Studies found that companies with high-performing health programs for employees outperform this S&P index as much as 16% a year. For me, okay, that sounds great, right? Healthy workforces are are wonderful for companies. I'm thinking, oh, that's because Google is comprised yep. of very young people, exactly. and young people are not are not sick. Um, so it's like you, you don't have to think very hard to realize the code here, which is never hire old people and never hire people with disabilities. It's, it's very scary. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Janet Yellen. Yeah. Good old Janet. Janet Yellen raised interest as we kind of knew that she would. She held off raising interest rates before the election, um, partly in fear that there would be a Brexit-style implosion in the markets were Donald Trump to win, unlikely though that outcome was. Um, In the end, of course, Donald Trump did win. The markets did not implode, quite the opposite. They seem to be hitting new all-time highs. And thusly reassured that the world is not coming to an end. Janet did what she probably would have done um, uh, six weeks ago and raised rates to the lofty heights of (laughs) half a percent to three quarters of a percent. Okay, now, I don't know how many listeners remember this, but Jordan and I had a bet 
about almost a year ago. I think it was in January about okay. how the, high rates the, would go. The, okay, this this sucks because people were giving me credit for saying on that episode that they wouldn't go above one percent. Yeah. However, you undercut me. Yes, I did. And you said, "What did you say? 0.5? I said they're not going to go nearly up to one percent. Okay, so yeah, I think I might have even said they're not going to go up again this year, and which in which case I lose. Yeah. But in any other situation, I have won. Yeah. No, it's true. <laughs> it's true. They are. They did not make the one percent barrier, so I was right, but Kathy was more right. <laughs> um, interest rates. So it. So the way that the Fed sets its interest rates is by manipulating this incredibly obscure indicator called the federal funds rate, which is all to do with interbank lending. And that has now reached, as I say, a range of between 0.5 and 0.75%. This is on any level low, but it is a sign that rates are reverting to normal. The Fed is saying that employment is, we've basically reached maximum employment, that inflation is heading up towards the 2% target, and that therefore we don't need the incredibly accommodative stance of ultra, ultra low monetary policy that we've had until now. So they've started to hike. Just to give a little context here, I wrote down a few numbers that we had in the past of this interest rate, uh, the Fed rate. Uh, it was up to 8% in 1990. It went to 6% in 1998. It was at 65 at 2003, 5.25 5. in 2008. Now, it did go down to 1% a few times during like, in response to recessions. But it essentially has never been as low as it's been since 2008, which it went, went down to 0 to 0. 0.25. And now it's all the way up to 0. 0.75. Really incredibly tiny if you look at the graph over the last 20 years, incredibly, just a tiny blip up. So, but, And yet, this is, the, the, the point isn't really the level so much as the, the, direction. the direction. And this is the Fed clearly saying, hey, we're going to raise rates. They put this handy little thing called a dot plot in every, every time they, mm -hmm. they have a, a meeting. And one of the things that you see in a dot plot is where do they expect rates to be over the long term? What's their expected like long term range for where rates are going to be? And they said very clearly in their dot plot that it's going to be three percent. And they said very clearly in the statement that they're going to be raising rates slowly up to that level of about three percent. So we have a bunch of hikes ahead of us. So I think that the you know, wider significance for, for most people here is that this is sort of the Fed saying, yeah, this economy is about as good as it gets. Like, this is what we're feeling right now, like this level of unemployment and labor force participation and just this general vibe. This is as groovy as we're going to be. And so, you know, that has some political implications as well, um, because there are all the there's all this discussion about what's, you know, What's Voldemort going to do when he finally gets, you know, into when he's finally inaugurated and what's what's Congress going to do? And some of that has been, OK, they're going to do big infrastructure projects. And they're going to do big tax cuts. And maybe that's actually going to have like a stimulative effect on the economy. And that's something that markets have been kind of pricing in. And right now what we're seeing the Fed say is eh, we're not really going to let you heat up the economy that much. We think that the way things are going now is pretty much OK. We're probably not going to accommodate that. We're going to keep raising rates because we don't want to see inflation get out of control. Uh, you see, I don't read the statement that way. Mm, I do. And, I, and I, that's, I mean, I'm reading the statement and they're saying the committee expects that with gradual adjustments, economic activity will expand at a moderate pace and labor market conditions will strengthen somewhat further and inflation is expected to rise. I mean... In f the policy stance is still, in the technical jargon, accommodative. They they are still keeping interest rates well below wh where they would be in order to actually try and slow things down 
Um, I, I feel that what they're really doing here is they're giving themselves some ammunition. They're giving themselves some dry powder in the event that they need to cut rates. If yes. something bad happens, you can't cut rates if they're at zero. You can cut rates if they're at like one and a half. So if you slowly raise rates up to like one and a half, and then there's an emergency, you can do an emergency rate cut. There, there's, I totally there, agree with you, Felix. So there's there's some argument about whether or not the dry powder theory actually makes any sense because you're if, you know... Essentially, you're saying it's like, okay, you're raising rates now, so you can lower them later. But by raising rates now, you're theoretically, you know, slowing the economy down somewhat. So you're almost going to have to raise them later. It's you can argue about that. I will say as as far as whether or not they're still accommodative, they are accommodating the economy as it stands now. That given the like the fiscal stance, the, the given what Congress is actually doing, how the government is spending. If that were to change, I think what they are signaling is that mm, we're kind of comfortable raising rates slowly at the moment and we are planning to raise rates slowly. But if suddenly the government just dumps a pile of money on the economy, they're going to raise them a lot faster. I think that's obvious. At and, this point. and I don't know if that's obvious, but it's also in line with what they've been doing all along, which is basically saying we hate this, but in the absence of the fiscal stimulus that the economy needs, we're going to have to provide monetary stimulus. If the Congress actually goes ahead and does the fiscal stimulus that the economy needs, then we don't need to do the monetary stimulus and we can raise rates. I'm, so I think that's fine. I'm going to go, I'm going to come up with I have a new different theory and I want to come at it from the, the following direction. The What is the Fed's mandate? I know they have a dual mandate. They have a dual mandate yeah, of full employment and, and low inflation or 2% inflation. 2% inflation. Um, so inflation is actually below 2%, right? But it's Correct. rising. Yeah. Yes. Now, why is it rising? We had a conversation a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about fiscal stimulus or monetary stimulus, like what is it that's raising um, inflation? But here's a theory. What's really raising inflation is that immigrants, especially undocumented immigrants, are fleeing the country. And when they flee the country, companies need to pay more for the same work. And then when they have to pay more, the goods become more expensive. So farmers, for example, but anybody who basically hires a lot of undocumented workers. So that their actual costs are going up. So inflation's going up. So my theory is that they actually the Fed doesn't have to do anything to get inflation up to 2% because because Voldemort has scared away undocumented do, immigrants. Do we have any evidence of that that he's actually scared away undocumented immigrants? I think like inflation's creeping up on I'm, the margin. Do you think uh, the undocumented immigrant is going to be like, "Oh, Trump President Trump is going to is warmly going to welcome me into this country?" I, I'm going to It's a theory. You guys, I have I have a theory, you guys have a theory. My theory is that inflation's going to rise because of the immigrant problem, not because of stimulus. I don't know if there's an immigrant problem yet. I, I don't know. Where, data. Data. Okay. Let, it's <laughs> a theory. The, we can we can compare in another year and we'll see. I mean, I think a, a bigger thing is just like low oil prices or like oil prices stopped falling and now have risen a bit. And so that, that, that bite's been taken out of inflation. And that was one thing that was keeping it down for a long time. So now we're kind of getting back to more of a normal cycle. And I think core CPI is also being put. I've, I haven't looked at okay, it like right. last minute. Jordan, but, Jordan, you have now said core CPI, which is the, the alarm bells going like even by slate money standards. <laughs> I am sure our listeners. Okay. Inflation, if you don't count food and energy. Even that has been rising. I think a lot of that is healthcare costs. I haven't looked at it in like the past 10 minutes, but I can double check later in the episode. But anyway. Anyway, so. my, the overall point is that inflation might be going up to a healthy 2%, even without Fed rate changes. The, the, the more important point, of course, and this is a debate which has been raging for a while in theory and might actually become a debate in practice, is that although the Fed has this 2% inflation target, it seems to have a rather asymmetric 
2% inflation target, and that it's much happier with 1% inflation than it is with 3% inflation. It is much happier with 0% inflation than it is with 4% inflation. And that so long as inflation is below 2%, they might make noises about, oh, we're not quite at our target yet, but they are, they're really not that unhappy about really? it. Really? I, that, I thought they were. And that, well, they, they like it to rise, but if inflation goes above 2%, we will see because it hasn't got there yet. But they then suddenly their hair's on fire and they have to start raising rates because inflation, inflation, inflation. And it's a really horrible thing. I, we will see what happens. I, I think that's absolutely right. There is still a, a strong strain of inflation phobia. In the, it, even Do you after guys don't all these think years. there's any deflation phobia? Like they, we don't want to be Japan? They, they've had some. And I think we've seen a, I mean, We saw a bit of that in 2009. And I think yeah. it went away pretty quickly. Okay. Even Yeah, there have been a few members. Like there's still one guy on the dot plot who is like doesn't want to raise rates at all like you can see there's one dude who thinks we should just keep them where they are yeah but, but we don't know who it is but nariana coach lakota has left i know now. so, so i don't so know the negative left. the negative dot has disappeared that's true uh that was always fun that's, i like the dot. negative dot yeah so so kathy yeah since you made your prediction last year yeah we may as well have another prediction this year um yeah where where are rates going to be at the end of 2017 i think they're going to be at one percent jordan Ugh, I'm I, I'm like putting my future as a bond trader on the line here. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna tack on a political prediction, which is there will that they're gonna go up to like m- maybe one point two five, one point five. No, I'm gonna one point two five, one point two five, and part of that <laughs> will sticking be sticking close to Kathy now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm gonna go to one point two five, and, and partly because I think that there will be some sort of deficit increasing tax cut from the Republicans. Almost certainly will be some sort of deficit increasing tax cut, which will encourage the Fed to try to you know keep raising rates a pace. I'll whatever. I'll take the I'll take the over. I'll say I'll say it's going to be like one and a half, and we'll revisit this time next year. See where rates are. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So I was looking back at my New York Times archives, uh, a story that the New York Times ran in 2014 about how all of these doctors had been prescribing a bunch of prescription drugs, a lot of drugs which had been around since like the 1830s and stuff which was completely in the public domain. And there was no rocket science to making them and kept on prescribing them without any thought to them. And then suddenly one day, their patients start coming and saying this needs pre-approval and the drug has become incredibly expensive. And that what has happened, you know, and this was two, three years ago, this story, is that a huge number of drugs which have always been cheap were start, starting to become expensive. These are not, this is not a patent problem. This is not a, companies extracting rents from patent problem. This is just that 
the basic generic drugs, which are in the public domain, were becoming much more expensive. Jordan. Yes. Was this a criminal conspiracy? Well, for a while, we didn't think so. But now it's starting to look like maybe it was. Um, So the news is this week, uh, the Department of Justice, well, there are two pieces of big news. The Department of Justice on Wednesday uh, charged two drug executives from a company, Heritage Pharmaceuticals, um, in a criminal antitrust conspiracy um, to fix the prices of some of these uh, generic drugs. Uh, the two of them were doxycycline, uh, which is an antibiotic that, get used, that gets used for acne a lot, and uh, glyburide, which is an oral diabetes medication. Um, I mean, it's really just like an old school price fixing, like literally, hey, I'm telling my salespeople to go talk to salespeople at other companies and let's agree on a price hike between so our, the, us and our competitors. I mean, it's like- Or, or they would just divvy up the market. They that, would basically say- you take the Western U.S., we'll take the Eastern U.S., and we won't compete on price, and that way we'll both make more money. There, there is some of that as well. I mean, there's, there are layers to it, but I mean, it's, it's not anything complicated. Like, you have to understand the economics of, prescri- uh, of, of prescription drugs and how the generics get manufactured. It's really just like, yeah, it's, it was a conspiracy. And so Wait, the these, thing- these two executives worked in the same place? Yeah, it's these two guys, but here's, here's why it's how, how, how would that work? I mean, obviously, they have to have people from other companies so here's, to collude, right? So here's the thing. This, yeah. They were charged in what's known as a criminal information. These two guys, essentially, when, when that comes out, that's basically two people who are pleading guilty. They are oh. when, a, when it's a criminal information, not like an indictment, you know those guys have flipped. And so this involves not just this small company, Heritage, but there are a lot of companies that have been investigated. And some of the big names have gotten uh, subpoenas, companies like Mylan, Teva. And then here's the other big piece of news. The next the next day, yeah. 20 different states filed a civil antitrust lawsuit, the uh, attorneys general of these states, against just a roster of generic drug companies um, saying, kind of detailing, again, this antitrust conspiracy where it was price fixing um so wait stupid question like if i'm a hospital and i'm sourcing my drugs yeah uh, don't i have a palette of choices to choose from like if you if you're looking for a generic drug which is made by three different companies you definitely get to choose which one you want and you'll normally choose the cheapest one and what happens in a price fixing cartel is that those three different companies will get together and basically agree to keep on hiking the price of the drug. And so long as they all keep on hiking the price of the drug, then the hospital has no choice but to pay more and more and more. Okay. Yeah. That's how that works. And and again, like, you know, you read the details of this conspiracy and it's, you know, I mean, some of it's kind of funny. You would have industry ladies nights where like, you know, women from these companies would get together to like have dinner and then talk about like their proposals that they were getting from clients and how much they should be charging them um, and stuff wow. like. I mean, it, it's pretty. Or some, this is all alleged. Like this is you know sharing this kind of this information that you're not supposed to be. And, and the thing which strikes me yeah. is that this is. It looks like there's going to be a bunch of civil and criminal cases here, and that the there was a certain amount of like clearly illegal um, cartelization in the industry and that people will probably wind up going to jail and that's a good thing. What worries me is that you don't need that for collusion to happen. That if you just go back one week to when we were talking about the airline industry, there's this kind of unspoken understanding between the airlines that they're not going to compete on price and that's made them all much more profitable. I know a lot about the 
art auction industry. And what you see in art auctions is they have this thing called the buyer's premium. It's the extra amount that they charge the buyer over and above the um, cost of the, the, the hammer price. And when Sotheby's raises their buyer's premium, Christie's raises it the following day. And then when Christie's raises it, Sotheby's raises it the following day. And you, you don't need to collude. And I mean, um, Alfred Taubman, the former ch- chairman of Sotheby's, went to jail for colluding with Christie's on this. But you don't need to collude. All you need to do is just kind of like watch what the other one does and then do the same thing. So, so not that's... to be like a free market freak or anything, but like why hasn't another company stepped in and said, I can make these generic drugs for cheap? Well, so a couple things here. First off, you do have to go through the whole regulatory approval. There are hurdles to doing, you know, to creating a generic drug. And I think that actually is part of where there are only so many companies too. And there has been some consolidation in the industry and it gets easier to collude as it's smaller, as as things do as an industry uh, consolidates. I do want to push back a little Felix on your point, which because among health wonks, among reporters, the initial impulse was to try and explain this rise in prescription drug prices that we were seeing in terms of market forces. It's like, okay, well, there's uh, a consolidating industry and you get this effect of shadow pricing when they just kind of watch what they're doing and they imitate each other, but they're not necessarily doing anything illegal. And well, there were drug shortages because some factories had to shut down and doing kind of jumping through all these hoops to explain these rising prices. And as it turns out, that all may have been a factor. But also there is some illegal activity. And so I think one thing a case like this should remind us is, you know, sometimes when it looks like a comp- like a whole industry is a cartel and people are colluding, maybe they're just a cartel and they're colluding. <laughs> like maybe where there's smoke, there's fire. Um, and I, I think that should be a little bit of a wake up call, especially going forward with, you know, in the future with antitrust policy. Well, I feel I feel like there's there's another thing since this is slate money, another area where um there's a kind of implicit collusion, which is a really fascinating one, which is IPO pricing. If you're a company and you're going public, you pay your lead investment bank 7% of the proceeds. Why do you pay them 7% of the proceeds? Because that's just the kind of standard amount that you pay them. And no bank ever competes on price. No one ever says, hey, we'll take you public for 4%. And why don't they? Yeah, I mean that's like the two and twenty thing, right? Like um, hedge funds are just like, oh, it's an industry standard. Everyone knows the yeah. standard. Where it's actually, well, that's collusion in a way when you're all getting around and just if you, saying if, that. It's if you point. if you want to sell an apartment in New York City, you pay six percent as a fee to the real estate brokers. Why? Because that's the standard. It does, you know, it, there are forty five different brokerages in Ameri- in in New York, but they all charge exactly the same six percent. So we see, so there are actually, it's not hard to look around us and see areas where the market is not working and that you don't have competition driving prices down. And I think the lesson of these lawsuits is just that sometimes when you look around and you see that, it turns out there is illegal activity going on. And then sometimes I would say what's going on is still collusion. It's just not illegal collusion. Hi, I'm Francis Fry. And I'm Ann Morris. And we are the hosts of a new TED podcast called Fixable. We've helped leaders at some of the world's most competitive companies solve all kinds of problems. On our show, we'll pull back the curtain and give you the type of honest, unfiltered advice we usually reserve for top executives. Maybe you have a coworker with boundary issues, or you want to know how to inspire and motivate your team. Give us a call, and we'll help you solve the problems you're stuck on. Find Fixable wherever you listen. 
So the numbers round this week, uh, the first number is not really my number, but is is the number which every single listener of Slate <laughs> Money either emailed or tweeted us about. And it is 757, which is the number of the Boeing model of jet, which Donald Trump owns and flies around with. He has a Boeing 757. He does not. Contra to the slate money last week, have a Boeing 747. We regret the error. It's it's actually, so I do want to just discuss this for a second because many people pointed out that we had a whole conversation about how Trump's plane was so wasteful because it was this giant monster. And a 757, for those who are not- Is a wasteful monster. Yeah, it is still a wasteful <laughs> monster, but it is a significantly smaller wasteful monster than the 747. However- our, our main point still stands. If you go and compare what Trump flies around into a typical private airplane that a wealthy man has, it is still burning up gas left and right and requires longer runway, et cetera, et cetera. So our point still stands directionally. And But I will say, you know who does have a private 747? Larry Page and Sergey Brin. Do they? they Actually? They, they share one. That's That's awful. So, so since I was talking about real estate prices, I'm going to go first with my number. My number is $1 million. On Slate Money, we love to geek out about the difference between different types of averages and the difference between the mean and the median. $1 million is now the difference between the mean apartment price in New York and the median wow. apartment price in New York. Let me guess. Go on. $2 million mean, $1 million median. Very close. Yes, it's... 1.2 million median, 2.2 million mean. Crazy. That's a huge difference. This time last year it was 800,000, which is the difference between the 1.1 million median price and the 1.9 million mean price. The mean price has gone up by $300,000 in one year. Uh, the median price just by a mere $100,000. I thought a real estate bubble was breaking or something. doesn't I th- sound like I it. I think what's happened in New York is that the prices – They've kind of been leveling off. What's happened is there's been a significant decrease in transactions. The number of units. The the number of sales of apartments in New York has dropped by about 20%, I think. Um, but you'd but expect the, the prices to go follow it, that. But New York, well, property prices in general move slowly, especially in New York. So once the rate of sales drops significantly for a significant amount of time, and then maybe eventually prices will go down. But for now... But they'll never be affordable. For now, if you want to buy the median apartment in New York City, you're going to have to pay $1.2 million, which seems like a lot of money. But compared to the mean apartment in New York City, (laughs) it's downright cheap. Okay, my number is $7.5 billion, which is um, the size of the cyber insurance market. Um, at least projected in 2020. Um, that's just a huge amount. It's now about $3 billion. Um, what I'm talking about here is things like data breaches. And what I'm talking about here is things like 1 billion Yahoo users. Uh, so wait, being this, exposed. Is, this is the amount that companies are paying in premiums to insure themselves against that kind of breach. Yes. So let's say that I'm Yahoo and I had cyber insurance and someone stole a billion pieces of user information and I have this insurance, then what do I get? Does the insurance company pay me like $2 billion to reimburse me for the cost of Being the amount idiot. that Verizon <laughs> is not going to pay me to buy me? I mean, like, what? I'm not quite sure how you get reimbursed for this. And I'm not even sure how an insurance company would like determine your risk. And like, if they determine that you have a large risk, would then, wouldn't they make you like go to a lo- like further extent to, to protect yourself? I'm not really sure how the system works. We can look into it for another topic. Jordan. 
My number is uh, zero, which it's slightly speculative, but it's how many PhD economists I think are actually going to be involved in the Trump administration at this point. Uh, right? You mean Larry Kudlow does not have a PhD uh, yeah, in, so, in economics? So news broke this week that Larry Kudlow will, in all likelihood, Who's that guy? yeah, the you've never, no, 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 no. you're so lucky. Uh, so <laughs> he's the CNBC talking head who um, used to be in the Reagan administration and then was the chief economist, quote unquote, at Bear Stearns. That ended in tears. Uh, he wasn't there during the crash, but it ended in tears earlier. Um, and then you know became a media figure essentially. Uh, he doesn't have an undergraduate degree in economics he doesn't have a graduate degree he actually he went i think he went to the woodrow wilson school for like public policy stuff and graduated or left without a master's um this, typically the cea is headed by some you know th- this is where you're supposed to get the smart economists in the room it's it's jason Furman currently it, it's it's the one place you're they are supposed to have that that type of expertise guaranteed are they supposed to have a whole crew of economists I mean, yeah they have a staff too and maybe he will have some staffers but it just like i just I kind of feel like there's a chance that there will be zero. <laughs> Is this what Larry Summers was to Obama at the beginning of? Yes, a, yeah. at one point. Larry- so, no, Larry Summers was not CEA. He was uh, the NEC. Which and- is where Gary Cohn is now. So Gary Cohn is the new Larry Summers. <laughs> Larry Kudlow is the new Jason Furman. What could possibly go wrong? So that's it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Thanks again to everyone who made it out to our live show at Union Hall in Brooklyn. Thank you to Union Hall in Brooklyn. They were awesome. If you like this show, subscribe to us so you get to listen to that show when it comes out. Email us. The address, as ever, is slatemoney at slate.com. The producer of Slate Money is Zach Dynasty, and the executive producers are Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers, and all of the other Panoply podcasts can be found at itunes.com slash panoply. So we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.